Father, take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for Thee, for Jesus' sake. Amen. As Anglican Christians, we enjoy a liturgical calendar. Uh, this is a calendar which folds out the story of the gospel. Uh, it's not given in Scripture. It's something that evolved in the life of the church, but the church found it to be a healthy way of telling the gospel story. Well, there's biblical precedent. In the Old Testament, you have uh, uh, the Jewish Pentecost, you have East, uh, you have uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, you have Passover, and these were fixed celebrations that defined the life of the Old Testament church. In the New Testament, the primary fixers of our tradition is Easter and Christmas, and then it sort of spreads out from there. More or less, the calendar was in shape by about the year 700, although things got tweaked and added and adjusted along the way. One of the latest additions to the church calendar is today, the Feast of Christ the King. Uh, this feast came into the church very, very late. and uh, entered into the life of the church when Pope Pius XI declared the last Sunday in October to be, oh my goodness, this is a clunky title, to be uh, the, uh, uh, the solemnity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's a little bit wordy to get onto a bulletin, but there it was. But he added it in 1925, and the reason he added it was because following World War I, Europe was in crisis. There was an optimism in the 19th century that things would be getting better and better and better. We were evolving toward being the people God wanted us to be, and then the horror story of World War I occurred, and people's confidence was shaken. Confidence in the church as being authoritative was shaken. Biblical studies, as they were done, shook the confidence of people believing that Scripture had an authoritative word. And so people were saying, it's fruit basket upset. It's a free-for-all. Anyone can have their own morality and their own truth. And into this the Pope came with an announcement, a summary announcement, that Jesus is King. Now that got adjusted along the way because come uh, 1963, uh, Pope Paul VI moved it to the last day of the church year uh, and with the liturgical calendar and the buy-in from so many churches into that three-year liturgical calendar, including Anglicanism, and I'm glad we did this, it became the last day of the liturgical year. That's today. The last day of the liturgical year is not December 31st. It's the last Sunday of Pentecost. And you can see the logic of it. I mean, look at the calendar. In Advent, our first liturgical season, we celebrate Christ the King is coming. He's coming again at the end of the time, but he also is coming to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. In Christmas, we talk about how the new king has been born, and we sing, glory to the newborn king. 
We move into uh, Epiphany, and those Epiphany stories are stories about the nature of this king. He's not a king like others, but he's this king, and, you know, changing water into wine tells the story that he has power even over creation, etc., etc. The last Sunday of Epiphany is the Transfiguration story, and God says, listen to him. Jesus king, listen to him. Through Lent, we see Jesus progressing from the northern kingdom all the way to the southern kingdom, all the way up the mountain to Jerusalem, all the way to the cross, where he mounts the cross as a king mounting his throne to win. In Easter, we have a celebration of the king who rises victorious from the dead. And what does that have to do with kingship? Here's one of the primary things a king does. A king wins battles for you. A king goes out and he fights the battle. He leads the charge. And when no one could fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, when no one could defeat death and sin and shame, Jesus defeated that. And he is the king who wins. And then with the story of ascension toward the end of the uh, Easter season, Jesus ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, not a relaxing and saying, boy, that was a really hard 33 years, I'm glad to sit down. No, he sat on the throne to rule. When we say, as we will in a moment in the creed, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand, we are affirming that Jesus is seated in heaven as a king. And then we look forward to Pentecost. And Pentecost, you know, is the giving forth of the Holy Spirit and the various gifts related, related to that. But that's a kingship theme too. Because the king, when he won the battle, went out, defeated the enemy, seized the goods, brought them back, and gave gifts to people. There's actually, when he would have his celebration and rode in triumph in his chariot through the city, he would have a big bucket of money and coins, and he'd reach down, and he would throw it to the crowd. I mean, that helped people to show up for the uh, parade, of course. But then Paul references that, and St. Paul says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. That's us. We are included. So if you have a spiritual gift, and if you are a Christian, you do have a spiritual gift, that is a gift not just from God, but from Jesus the King. And then we come into the long season of Pentecost. It's slightly longer than six months, a little more than the other seasons put together. But the stories that we tell in Pentecost are stories about what the kingdom of God looks like. And about half of those stories, more than half, are stories about the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like uh, ten virgins that stayed up and kept their la lamps lit or not. It's, it's, it's two kings who went out to battle. It's like a seed that is growing slowly. But they, it's about the kingdom of God. And we belong to that kingdom. So how do we live in this kingdom under God the King? These are the themes that we are looking at. So I want to talk to you today about Jesus as King. I want to clear up two distinctions first and then speak to some issues of kingship. The first distinction I want to make is language that is used in England to talk about Queen Elizabeth, their monarchical constitutional queen. And the language is the verbs rule, and serve. The prime minister rules, the 
monarch reigns. Now, what's the distinction? If you want to get something done, you have to go to the prime minister with parliament to declare war, to make new laws about X, Y, or Z, to raise taxes. The prime minister rules. But the queen reigns. She has a ceremonial rule. She has a, a, a ritual rule. She'll come and she'll cut the ribbon and, and open the bridge. She goes to the hospital and declares it now open for business. She breaks the champagne over the uh, battleship being blessed. These are ceremonial things being done. But the prime minister has rule. She has reign. Now, my fear is that many Christians bring that kind of separation of thinking into the life of the church. They come into a beautiful building like this. They see its clergy investments with brocade and silk. We have a different kind of building here with candles and lights and liturgical things and, and, and music and ritual. And we say, oh, hooray for God. Our God reigns. But then they walk out of that door and they say, I rule. And they make that separation in their own lives. And many people do that. I have the title of this sermon you may have seen is, You Gotta Serve Someone. Now, that's not my sermon title. I borrowed that from, uh, uh, does anybody know who I borrowed that from? Okay, it's, it's old, I um, uh, just went blank on his name, uh, Bob Dylan. And when he was in his Christian face, he wrote that song, and he says, You Gotta Serve Someone. You gotta serve someone. Nobody is independent of a ruler. But these people are schizophrenic. They serve God ritually as he reigns, but they serve themselves or their political cause or their race or their nationality or their whatever, and that rules. And that's schizophrenic. The second distinction I want to make is the distinction that I heard when I was first converted back in 1969. I heard it all through the 70s. It was the notion, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, and now I'm working on accepting Him as my Lord. I'm just curious, how many people have heard that distinction made? Wow, it was a third of the crowd at the earlier service. And that's just a totally illegitimate distinction. As though you walk down the hallway and that office on the left is Jesus, the Savior, and you walk down here and there's this other person also called Jesus, and that's Jesus the Lord. And I have a great relationship here with Jesus, Savior, but I'm not really in relationship with Jesus as Lord. That is to make Jesus schizophrenic. Jesus is one. And it's not that Jesus saves us and then his Lordship is something else. I would argue that theologically that's a misnomer, a misunderstanding, that Jesus is able to save because he is Lord. His salvation is a part of his lordship. Okay, I have those two things of the way. Let's talk about what it is to serve Jesus as king. First of all, let's notice that the king is not a voted position. We may vote for the prime minister, we don't vote for the queen. It's just a given. And why is it a given? It's a given because God created all things. He made all things. And in salvation, he redeemed all things. So we belong to him and he is our king because he is creator and provider and savior. We just accept that or we're in rebellion against that. Secondly, I want to say we serve Jesus as king by listening to him. 
We have his word. That's an incredible statement I just made. We have the word of Jesus. Now that's something that previous centuries would have looked upon and marveled at. Because they did not have the word of God. It might have been in a foreign language and they weren't accessible to it. You can go some places in the world today and it is a capital crime to own even one page of Scripture. Recently there was a man in North Korea who had one verse of the Bible printed out, cut out of a Bible. He had one verse and he was arrested and put in jail and found for crimes against the state. Now whatever happens to them is there, but think about us. That's not true about us. We have access to Scripture. I suspect everyone in this room has a Bible somewhere, and we can read it. We can take our bulletins home with four Scriptures in it, and we can just read those Scriptures alone throughout the week. And what we are doing is we are listening to the words of our King. I also want to talk about this difficulty of Jesus as being King. And... This is related to a dual citizenship that all of us have, a dual citizenship. I have two friends that have dual citizenships. One's an American citizen and simultaneously a British citizen. I, I don't know how that happened, but he has to fill out papers, and he has a bank account in England, and he has to do that. Another friend who's French, and he has a bank account in France, and he has to fill out some papers. But there's no real conflict about being a Brit and a Frenchman at the same time. But in the ancient world, that could be a huge problem because the first creed of the church was two words. You know what those two words are? It's found in the book of Romans, chapter, nine, verse nine, chapter 10, verse 9. St. Paul says, If anyone confesses with his mouth, Jesus kurios, Jesus, Jesus, kurios, Lord. You know, when I taught confirmation classes to 8th and ninth graders, I said, you might have liked to have been a Christian being confirmed in uh, the first century because the creed was only two words long. I said, I'm going to ask you to memorize the Apostles' Creed. It's much longer. Of course, the problem was that if they did the creed and professed the creed, there's a good chance they'd be killed, so maybe you're better off in the 20th century, but there that is. But two words, Jesus kurios. Now, why was that a problem? The problem was because Caesar is Lord, and that conflicts with Jesus being Lord. And so they were brought together, and the Christians said, look, we are good citizens. We pray for the emperor. We care for the poor. We are honest tradesmen. We tell the truth. We pay our bills on time. We work hard. We support our families. We're the best citizens you have in your empire. But the emperor still said, that's lovely, but you must say Caesar is Lord. I can't remember what month it was. What month? It's in our calendar. Maybe you can tell me after the service from the uh, calendar of our saints. But there's a celebration there, it's 178 or 179, the 14 martyrs of Lyon. Lyon is a town in southern France. If you go to the Mediterranean at the mouth of the Rhone River, go up the Rhone River, and uh, you pass Vienne on your left, and about 10, 20 miles later, you, you see Lyon. And back in 177, there were 14 Christians who refused to say, Caesar is Lord. Two words, Caesar Kurios. And they refused to say that. 
and they arrested them. They took him later out into a, a, a frozen river up above the city. I've been there. It's a beautiful spot, but horrifying to think about the history. They had them stripped down naked, according to the text. I've read the text in Greek and in Latin. Uh, it was later sent to the uh, uh, Asia Minor, uh, the martyrdom of these people. But 14 of them were stripped naked. They weren't naked. They were in their underwear, but that's what the passage means. But that's small comfort when the temperature's frozen. And they went out and they stood in the middle of this lake, and they put a table up here and a, a brazier of fire, and they had another fire. And all they had to do to get off the frozen ice was to come up, take a pinch of incense, throw it into the fire, and say two words, Caesar, Lord. And they gave them just to sweeten the deal, a little bag of money to get them off. And people, the whole town came up to see what was happening. You could see where they would have been standing, looking through the trees and watching the affair. One guy did wimp out, and I have no criticism of that man because I love my creature comforts, and I wonder what I would have done. But this man left. He came down, he pinched, he said the accursed words, he took the money, he got dressed, and he left and went back home. But there was one person there, a Roman soldier, who was so impressed with the fortitude of those other 13 that he took off his Roman uniform and his sword, and his helmet. And he went out there, he stripped himself naked like the others, and he went out there and he joined those 13. And they got down on their hands and knees, and with their fingernails, they scratched up little charges of ice. And the deacon who was there uh, put his hands like this, and they all put the charge in his hands, and he melted a little bit of water in his hand. And from that, they baptized the new Christian, and they sang a song. They made it up on the spot, a little two-liner. Fourteen soldiers went out to die. Fourteen soldiers won the crown. And they still sing that song every year on the anniversary in the cathedral at Lyon. It's a wonderful story. And I hope it puts steel in your bones and fire in your hearts because we are committed to Christ the Lord. We accept other loyalties. I'm an American. I obey the laws of Missouri, the laws of the United States, but it is the lordship under the lordship of Christ. That's what we said in the passage that Carl read for us, that Jesus is Lord of lords. He is king of kings. It's not that there's only one king, but all of the authority of the other kings is under the authority of that king. And if it ever comes to the situation where loyalty to Jesus and loyalty to the United States of America conflict, I hope we all know what our fundamental loyalty is about. And that's what we are called to. So today is the feast of Jesus, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. I hope today can be an opportunity for you to renew your loyalty to Jesus as King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.